Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise That's yeah right. this That's is right. this is the best seat in the house That's right. we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. Now. does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear west turkey central ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta all right, so here's the picture, all right? Yeah. Um, there's a guy flying his airplane in New England, all right? Now, you, you got to picture New England, all right? Uh, and even people from around the country, I think maybe you can kind of visualize New England. It's the six-state area up here in the northeast part of the country, all right? kind of sticks up to the, uh, to the uh, north, northeast, all right? Look, look, look. There's, there's Atlanta, D.C., New York, and Canada. Okay, there's no New England. It's it, it doesn't really. Oh exist. yeah, no, Anything there's Rhode Island. In, there's in, Rhode Island, exactly, yeah. which is not an island at all. No, no. But okay. anything north of New York is basically Canada. So this Wrong. guy is flying his airplane down in southern New England. Now, if you just picture New England and the southern sort of uh, boundary of New England faces uh, the Atlantic Ocean and Long Island Sound in that part. So, and 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 there's. Um, just offshore from the southern coast of New England, there's a place called Block Island. It's a very popular uh, fly, oh, yeah. flying Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know about Block Island. Okay. So, uh, Block Island. So, this guy is flying his airplane down there a few days back, and he's flying from Block Island to Rhode Island, westerly Rhode Island, all right? He arrives in the area of westerly Rhode Island and discovers that he can't get his landing gear to go down, all right? Oh, man, I hate when that happens. I know, really. But this happens from time to time. It's not the end of the world, and there are just ways that you deal with it, all right? How does this guy choose to deal with it? Well, here's the thing, all right? He decides to fly halfway across New England, all right? In order to, instead of trying to land at Westerly or at Providence or at uh -huh. Hartford or at at one of very many airports that he passed along the way, he flew for over an hour to get to Nashua, New Hampshire, where he performed a uh, gear-up landing. All right? Why, you may ask, did he fly halfway across New England in order to do his gear-up landing at Nashua, New Hampshire? It's 30 minutes, though, man. I mean... The reason he did this, the reason he did this is because oh, Nash yeah, that's easy. Nashua, New Hampshire is where his mechanic is located. All right. It makes perfect yeah. sense to me. Absolutely. No, I think it's Absolutely. genius. I think it's genius. All right. Because you got to figure you're probably going to need to fix something on this. Area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Better, better to have it there already than tow it there. Yeah. So this guy flew up to, I don't know, I, part of me thinks this is nuts and part of me thinks this is genius. All right? um, but uh, it was quite a thing in the news up here the last couple of days and on the internet too. Um, the, uh, the pilots on the internet were thrilled by this whole little thing as well um, that this guy flew. And, and because he spent an hour getting to Nashua, it gave plenty of time for the media to get on, on board. And so... <laughs> And somebody, so, somebody leaked the story. Yeah, well, you know, and uh, so uh, there's video of this guy coming in uh, over the over the airport fence. Uh, Was this the the gray and, and black or red uh, A36? That's the one. Yeah, right? yeah. and uh, it comes down over the fence. Uh, no gear showing. Uh, at, at the very last moment, he cuts the power on the uh, on the engine and uh, coasts in. Touches down very neatly on the pavement, skids for just a little while, not even very far, uh, comes to a stop, being chased by a couple of fire trucks, and uh, everything's hunky dory. But uh, it's just I, the, I, other, yeah. the other thing you'll notice in that video, yeah, uh, as as the air well as the airplane enters the frame and, and, and touches down, is the cabin door was already open slightly. I didn't yeah. notice. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, yes, the guy the guy had his stuff wired, and uh, the airplane will fly again. He'll fly again. Uh, what's the problem? Yeah, no, I guess. Well, you, you could see the right main was protruding from the well just a little bit. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I didn't notice that. Yeah. Yeah, just a, just a tiny bit there. You can you can see a little bit of wheel and 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 the, the that partial door that's on the yeah. bonanza, and uh, and then the door was open. And if there was anything to fault in the guy's exercise at all, I think he should have cut the engine about 20 seconds earlier 
because I think the engine was still turning from the looks of one of the prop blades. I was wondering uh, about that. Yeah. Yeah, one of the prop blades uh, is toast, and the other oh, one yeah. looks perfect. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're going to pull that and get it rebuilt anyway. Uh, well, and and if, insurance if, is paying for it. It doesn't now. So. That's right. It doesn't now. But if, yeah. if he'd have touched it down with the blades horizontal uh, and the engine stopped. Was it a two-blade or a three-blade? Was it a two-blade or a three-blade? Two-blade. Yeah, see, I've heard stories of people who are in this situation that uh, actually cranked the starter enough to get the, the the prop horizontal so that it didn't touch the ground. I, I've heard of I've heard of that too, and I'd I'd like to maybe practice it a couple of times yeah. before I do it for real. Yeah. Uh, or, and and, and might, might suggest to others listening to us do the same thing. Yeah. But I agree. It struck me as odd that he uh, he came in over the fence with the engine still running, and then I got to thinking about it. And I'm going, you know, let's not add you know an engine out to the whole thing. You know, right. for all you know, that he could chop the engine too soon, and then something else bad could happen. So well, you know, exactly, and that's what's and, and that's why you don't necessarily do that uh, as a matter of course. If you got the field made, you got plenty of time. Okay, maybe give it a shot, but uh, as a routine <laughs> response to an emergency, not necessarily. So, uh, congrats to this guy. Uh, this doesn't qualify as an off-field landing, but I guess we'll give him some cred here for uh, for you know doing a job, doing a good job, and dealing with the any, problem. Any landing you walk away from is yeah, a good right. landing. I have to admit, when I first heard this story, because someone twittered me that afternoon and said, "Did you hear about the this landing at uh, at uh, Nashua? Because Nashua is my home airport these days." Yeah. And uh, and I have to admit that my first thought is, what in, why in the world did this crazy guy fly halfway across New England in order to close the runway at my airport? All right, thanks a lot. All right, <laughs> but uh, well, my, my 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 first reaction was to check uh, my website. Where in the world is Jack Hodgson? <laughs> and and make sure that you weren't flying that day. Yeah, no. Uh, you never know, but no, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. That was a, that was this guy who came up and uh, wanted to be close to his mechanic. I figured if it was Jack, I'd have heard about it being Jack by now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Well, you know, when, when this happened to a very close acquaintance of mine, um, he had to wait uh, for, first off, a functional propeller to uh, come in. And while waiting on a functional propeller, a mechanic had to uh, uh, die penetrant test the crack and then do a, a dial micrometer run on the prop flange on the crank and a couple of other little uh, tests to affirm the conditions suitable for a 10-mile ferry flight. Right. Ah, okay. Then the, then the prop had to go on, and the 10-mile ferry flight had to occur, and the conditions uh, restricted it to that 10 miles not putting the wheels up uh, or any anything else. You will not pass code, do not collect, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then the prop had to come out and off, and the engine had to come out, and it had to go to tear down and, you know, uh, magnifluxing the crank and replacing bearings and gaskets and seals and all that, and it was very gnarly. And it would have moved along so much more quickly had my friend only had his unfortunate incident actually happen at dead cow instead of some other place yeah right, so right. so this is just plain good planning right that's what it is this is uh, just really smart guy saved himself a boatload of hassle yeah mm-hmm. and money yeah yeah all right. he's gonna and he, you know gear's not coming down anyway so it's not any real issue uh we know that so land it where you want it yeah yeah okay yeah, it's, yeah, it's, gonna, it's gonna not be like gear being stuck is going to affect the rest of the way it flies that's right okay Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 205 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Thursday, wow. August 26, I think. Yes, Thursday, August 26, 2010. <laughs> and uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar, and uh, we're, 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 we're really kind of holding it together by t- talking about, uh, you know, kind Duct of dealing tape with... tape and safety wire. Exactly, exactly. There you go. Uh, let me say hi to my friends here in the, uh, in the virtual hangar, and we'll explain what's going on here. First person uh, is, of course, Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm pretty good. It's been a pretty good week so far. Um, having a good time. The, actually, the sun is out today. We were we were starting to line up in twos just to make sure we didn't miss anything. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 vicious. There's standing water just about everywhere. Well, a week ago, you and Amy were moaning about the heat. Is that kind of? It certainly cured the heat, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what to expect next. Locusts. <laughs> uh, uh, 
I don't know. Plague? I'm making my little violin sign right here. Okay. I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. All right. Uh, and also, well, let's see, looking at the calendar here, I think grasshoppers are the next one for you guys. Yeah. 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 Uh, I've I've seen some that should have end numbers down here, but um, <laughs> yeah. I, I I'm not. I wouldn't look forward to that. Let's put it that way. He's got grasshoppers so big that they qualify by the FAA as bird strikes if you hit That's one. Right. Yeah. That's right. And also joining us in the virtual hangar is Dave Higdon, who uh, this week is checking in by cell phone from uh, scenic. Well, you're in Indiana, right? Are you in Indiana, David? I'm in I'm I'm in uh, southern Indiana. Uh, I'm about a half a mile off the Ohio River, uh, and under the uh, United Parcel Service Air Service arrival to uh, Louisville International, so we may get the occasional wide body cruising over at flight idle on the way into uh, the airport over there. So you, so what you're saying is you have ADSB, you just have no internet, right? And, uh, but in spite of that level of technology, you cannot get connected to the internet this afternoon, right? And, uh, Not this particular moment, no. Uh, we seem to have a, uh, a, a uh, well, a, a junction box here needs SPF 500 sunscreen. Yeah. That's, oh, it, that's the problem. No, the problem is the NSA had to change a hard drive. Now, that could well be, too. And and I did feel a a strange sensation when I sat down, but who knows? Uh, See, more information than I really wanted right there. Uh, And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from UCAP Summer Headquarters, high high atop Lookout Point here in, (laughs) I don't know what this week, but something, Nottingham, New Hampshire. Have you, like, ever done any video or or stills of what Lookout Point really is? I don't know what this is. Is this a mansion on the side of a hill? Is this a a two-room hut? I don't know what this is. I want to hear more about this. It's like Fibber McGee's closet. I mean, it's better better if it's only in your imagination. (laughs) Dave gets that. Dave gets it. Uh, Fibber (laughs) McGee. Anyways. I think I went to high school. <laughs> so let's see now. One little bit of, uh, of uh, business, if you will, before we move on to the news of the day here. And it that is, is to uh, uh, congratulations to all three of us. Uh, this is the first episode of year five of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. Uh, oh, my God. We'll have to start kindergarten this year. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. We, we, we sh- you'd think we'd be out of diapers by now. Uh, you'd, you'd think, but you know, well, uh-huh. Um, Sunday, I believe it was, was the, uh, was the fourth anniversary of, uh, the first time we did this podcast. And, uh, so here we go. A date which will live in... So what, what, what's appropriate for a fourth anniversary? A, a, a pebble? I don't know. We should look that we up. We should huh? look that up. We yeah. should look that up. Jim, well, you know, your... in our, in our, uh, maybe, maybe we'll get lucky and it'll be, you know, an extra 300. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. At which point the guy says, an extra 300 what? Oh, you mean the airplane. <laughs> an extra 300 for that, for 30 minutes? Are you kidding? Yeah. So, David, you don't, have the, uh, you don't have the benefit of uh, an Internet browser in front of you this, this week, so, uh, so you're going to really have to truly make everything up as we talk um, here today. Um, there, there won't be anything new about that. Yeah, right. I know. So uh, I want to see. Do you remember that you you told us about the story of Prescott, Arizona, and how the uh, the uh, airlines had decided to uh, leave Prescott, Arizona's airport, and so the uh, the town fathers decided that they, or I guess they were wrestling with the question of whether or not they should maintain the TSA level security, even though there was no airline, um, and apparently they're deciding to uh, let it slide. They're not going to have. Uh, I, 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 I remember it well because uh, I'm not sure that there was a party among the GA pilots who remain at Prescott, uh, but I know there was a party mindset because uh, the uh, the downgrading, if you will, have a, I, I prefer the word rational normalizing the security level at Prescott Airport. Is this? Uh, I mean, wouldn't this be normal? Wouldn't they always get rid of the TSA level security if the airline goes away? Uh, I don't think any of this stuff happens automatically once it's in place. Uh-huh. You know, it, it, somebody's got to come along and say, excuse me, yoo-hoo, yeah, but I'm an old man security. Uh, they don't come here anymore. And then the airport can drop tracking and, and issuing about 1,500 badges. Yeah. They clearly don't need so stinking many badges anymore. Yeah. 
Um, but and then drop the number back to about a hundred. Then I even wonder why they need a hundred. There's, I don't know, maybe they're on double secret probation and after know. a food fight. I don't know. I know that uh, when when Jeff Ward gave me a tour of uh, of uh, Bedford Han- Hanscom Field in uh, Bedford, Mass. Um, he, he commented on the fact that although the airlines no longer are there, and as a result, a lot of these security measures are no longer really enforced, there was, apparently part of the insecurity was that there was a big white box painted on the ramp right out in front of the terminal building. And the rule had always been, do not step in the box, all right? Um, right, you could even get busted for taxiing through the box. Yeah, and so... Um, they, they obviously have complied with this rule when the airlines were there and when the security was in place. But the day that I was there, they had been long gone. And he took me out on the ramp. And even though our route took us directly across the box, he kind of said, well, you know, we're not sure whether it's okay or not. So we still walk around the box. And even though the box has no application anymore, um, and, uh, and, and I guess Hanscom's a special case. They're not going to get rid of the security because it's a... Uh, it's a uh, oh, what's the um, the, the Boston uh, um, um, the, the organization that uh, that the uh, former FAA administrator used to run, Mass Mass uh, Massport. Massport Massport. Thank you very much. <laughs> Florida guy's telling me about. Anyways, um, <laughs> Hanscom is still run by Massport. I wasn't, and, I wasn't going to say anything myself. And all those Massport that. airports apparently still have that same level of, of you know security badges. Whenever Jeff comes up to to our brunches at, in Nashua. Um, he's always wearing his little little Massport security badge lanyard thing around his neck. And, uh, so well, and there there may be some issues if there's still a 135 operator there. Yeah, I, no, there wouldn't there wouldn't be actually. There might be only in certain hangars. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, but but that whole box thing is we we uh, we we we've seen that hang up people when the airlines left. And the airport operators didn't bother to get the security normally normalized and rationalized to the appropriate level. And then there'd be an inspector there and somebody would do the unthinkable and taxi through the box. Yeah. And for one brief 30-second period there, the balance of the world's future hung on the edge of whether that 30 seconds exposed them to an unreasonable risk of terrorist act. Check in with Glenn back tomorrow at yeah, 5. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, speaking of, speaking of the, uh, the, the uh, you know, safety of the world hanging in the balance here, um, there's a story from, uh, this story was, uh, was reported a lot of different places, but I'm reading it from CNN.com. Um, this says, uh, this is dated August 26, so, well, that's today. Um, military loses control of helicopter drone. It says a military test hey, facility. That yeah, a military test facility in southern Maryland lost control of an unmanned helicopter for about 20 minutes earlier in August before re- reestablishing its communications and returning it to the airfield it took off from. But here's the catch. All right, apparently this helicopter managed to stray into the Washington D.C. security area during this period of time, and. Uh, I mean, this is just juicy beyond belief. I I don't even know don't know what to think about this whole thing. Uh, Are we sure robots? it was a drone and not flown by teeny tiny aliens? No, it's it's the robots, man. There wasn't anybody flying this thing. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, you know, it's the robots. I mean, I want to know more about this story. I want to know how much trouble. See, I know the answer to this. I want to know how much trouble the military got into. For They're not plus- in any trouble. I know. They shoot us down. I, okay? Exactly. But exactly. here's a here, here's a military aircraft that just strays into the national airspace, and oh, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. And if it had run into somebody, it would have been well. Uh, you should have been watching out for us. Trust us. We're not. We li- we're, we're not liable. Uh, see and avoid. You know, it's like you have no eyeballs. Yeah. Well, yeah. seriously, well, I want to know what steps were taken. I want to know if they scrambled fighters. I want to know if they went out and did everything they do when a one fifty two wanders into the airspace. And do you have any idea how hard it is to unscramble a fighter once it's scrambled? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because no. All kidding aside. All right. How did they know that this thing? 
wasn't in fact being controlled by bad guys. I'm, and I'm serious, all right? Did they? Well, I'm, I'm sure, pretty sure it had an identification friend or foe transponder of some sort that was already showing it on uh, uh, somebody's radar screen. Right. Uh, simply for the purposes of the mission involved. So, so they're yeah. watching it, all right? But it, how, it, it's, it's not like they didn't know where it was. They knew where it was. Right, I want to know if they managed to establish that it was simply wandering lost. How did they know it wasn't, in fact, well, under the control of bad guys? This is what the, I want to know. Hey, it had uh, been hijacked. The key um, um, graph here from uh, the Navy uh, was... Um, I missed it. Oh, here it is. No, I, mean, I still don't have it. But it was basically um, the, the Navy had no comment with respect to what was going on inside the control center when the drone got lost. Oh, the Navy did not describe the scene inside the ground control station as operators sought to reestablish communication with the drone. That was in the AP story. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Well, here was the first Somebody indication. Somebody a sense of humor. Yeah. Somebody, here was the first indication that something had gone badly wrong. When the operator of the drone went, uh-oh. It's okay. I don't, think, I don't think that's what they said. Yeah, right. Okay. I, don't think <laughs> I think they, they use a uh -oh. different terminology. I think and and his, his supervisor comes over and says, what do you mean, uh-oh? <laughs> what do you mean, oops? Oops. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, uh, you know, uh, the helicopter drone I was flying? Well, uh, who knew it would make such a good practice target? Yeah, right, that would have been fun. Then. See, that would have been good if they had gone and shot it down. That would have been that would have been right. Fun. And then you that, got that, debris that, yeah. raining down on suburban DC. I know, right? Okay, that that would have made the evening news. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so. Airframes keep falling on my head. <laughs> that's, well, that's that's what they need to do is, is shoot something down. Uh, it's like a drone, and it looks like, come on, guys, it was a drone. It was. Not only was it a drone, hello, come in, it was one of your drones, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is what makes me tighten up certain muscles that should never be seen in public whenever I hear about opening up the national airspace to expanded drone traffic of any kind uh, because... You know, oh yeah, well they're getting better sensors and they can, you know, they have better, they have better situational awareness than humans do. Yes, but if a human's flying it, they have worse response time than humans do. Because chances are the data link that's controlling all this is being routed through multiple stations. Mm -hmm. It's not like some guy sitting there at the RC park. You know, with his with his uh, radio controlled uh, uh, aerobatic airplane waiting to get hit by that special. Uh, this is more like the guys flying the airplane from several hundred miles away, and when he puts in right stick, the little panel in front of him sends a right stick signal to a relay station, which sends a right stick signal to a satellite, which relays it back to the aircraft, and the aircraft goes, "Oh, you mean right now?" Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is my point. There's all kinds of places. I don't know. You got to figure that that there, there's latency. Yeah, and there's you know the the stories I read anyway, and this is well to what I understand to be common practice. There was there's software built into them that if it doesn't hear from the ground station in a set period of time, it turns around and it goes back to the base. Uh, that didn't happen in this instance. The software broke uh, or fell down, whatever you want to call it. Um, That's right. That that drone helicopter's brain is out there going. I'm free. I'm free. <laughs> no, it's, it's the robots, man. It's just a test flight. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't, How far don't, into the space did he get, Jeb? Do you know that space better than we do? Have any forty sense? forty miles is what was reported. I don't know if that's nautical or, or statute. I, I presume it is nautical. Wait a minute. How uh, how? What's the radius of this airspace to begin with? Well, the, the general radius of the Cifra airspace. Uh, is 30 nautical miles around the DCA vortex. Yeah. Uh, generally. Okay. This was outside the CIFRA, but there's an expanded um, enhanced procedures zone, for lack of a better term. There's a formal name for it. Right. Uh, that is 60 miles. But it's 60 uh, miles from the center, right? 60 miles from DCA. 60 miles from Washington National. That right. Washington, like Washington National is the center of this right. specific right. universe. Then that makes it sound like he got really close to the edge of the CIFRA then. 
he got very close to the edge of the Sifra. Um, and a long way into the, uh, the whatever they call it these days, yeah. the flight. Whatever. The, yeah. yeah. The, the right. trick is there's really nothing special that uh, he was supposed to know or do. Well, there is one thing he's supposed to know going into that airspace, and that's have, have done a uh, course on the Sifra itself right. to be eligible to go into it. But, but, but it's, uh, this is military, so they're probably exempt from Yeah, no, they're, they're very oh, exempt from that. But the, the punchline here is there wasn't any, uh, he didn't get into the, the more secure area, and it wasn't, he was only 10 miles uh, from it. So it's okay, well, and, no and, and the real, real point of this isn't whether he got into double-secret probation airspace or something. It's that they lost control in one of these damn things. They didn't lose control. <laughs> and they never had control in the first place. It's the robots. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they, didn't, they, they didn't have control in the first place. Yeah. Anyways, all right. Well, yeah, I man. don't know. You know. We'll have to, we'll have to, I don't know what we're going to have to do, but. They, yeah, you know. we probably shouldn't drone on about this any longer. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. Off fuel landing of the week uh, is oh, uh, uh, Warren Honeycutt, uh, 83 years old, uh, was flying in the, and I've been searching this story. I'm trying to find the name, what kind of airplane it is. I don't see that it says the type, but it says it's a, uh, um, a two seat plane that he built from scratch. Um, and so he was flying it and uh, had a, uh, let's see now, Honeycutt 83 had just taken off from a short grass airstrip in the Fletcher Business Park and reached about 2,400 feet in altitude when his motor started acting up. Quote, he quote, is quoted as saying, I had a gradual loss of power. Uh, it slowed up. I had to fly slow. We lent, anyway, to, to paraphrase here, um, he set it down in some trees. Uh, I guess he did okay, although it went over on its back when he landed. And uh, and uh, congratulations to uh, Warren Honeycutt for uh, getting it back on the ground safely. Now, my favorite of this story, this is the money quote for me, all right? Um, 83-year-old Warren Honeycutt was quoted after the whole thing happened, said, I probably would have enjoyed the crash, too, if I'd known I was going to live through it. <laughs> 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 you gotta love it. You gotta love it. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. Great quote. Whoever that reporter is, uh, I ought to get a raise. Yeah, yeah, because he knew that's the quote. That's the quote. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, wouldn't we all love it, right? I, I wouldn't mind crashing my airplane as long as I wasn't going to get hurt, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, it's a great story for the podcast, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. So, uh, I always wondered what it'd be like to walk away from a crumpled ball of. Oh, Reynolds rap. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, anyways, it's, uh, I, I mean, that's about all there is the story. It's a good story. Congratulations to him for getting it on the ground. But the quote is the best. I, I, I would have enjoyed it too if I'd known I was going to live through it. And, uh, you, so. you, one thing about it, if you knew in advance you were going to survive, it'd be a lot easier to relax. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Duh. Um, so, uh, Speaking of living, knowing oh, you're going to survive, and knowing that the insurance company had cashed the check. Yeah. <clears throat> Speaking of uh, living through crashes, uh, no, it's not a crash exactly, but uh, um, the uh, uh, the internet is also all a buzz about this Remos hard landing um, that was caught on video. Uh, it's kind of interesting here. The uh, um, these guys, were, it was a training flight. An instructor and a student uh, were flying the Remos. They had mounted a camera um, uh, in between and behind the two of them. So you're looking out through the, through the front windshield across the panel. And uh, you're watching them on uh, final all the way through, quote-unquote, touchdown. And uh, the upshot of this is that they touched down really hard. And among other things, the nose wheel collapsed. And... Uh, uh, and you get to see all this uh, on the video. It's it's pretty interesting, and uh, there's a lot of conversation. The uh, the the uh, the student pilot who was shooting this video and then posted the video on YouTube uh, spent some time um, explaining his belief that this was the result of a stall that happened way above the published stall speed. And um, he was partially trying to explain what happened and partially trying to protect his CFI, who was taking a lot of the blame on this. Um, the the consensus, and again, we don't really know, you know, we're just kind of speculating from afar here, but uh, the consensus is building up that this wasn't a stall. That he didn't kind of, you know, uh, he, he was landing 
apparently fast because he was landing long. It just wasn't setting down. And then all of a sudden it just dropped. It seemed to drop. It's kind of suddenly impacted he, he the runway. He forced it onto the runway. You think that's had, what happened? I, yeah, I he, had wait, I, he had wait. It's typical. It's a common, common uh, accident, common uh, cause. Yeah. yeah. Uh, too much airspeed. Tried to force it onto the runway. And it bounced. And instead of correcting with aft uh, pitch control in the bounce to get the nose wheel off the ground, he either did not correct at all or introduced some nose down moment. Um, and the nose wheel broke when it hit. Okay, yeah. it happens. It happens uh, to a lot of airplanes. It's not a. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time because generally people get trained to keep the nose up. Well, and there's some airplanes that are notorious for their susceptibility to it because of the nose gear design, not the flying characteristics. Well, there's there's other ways to skin the cat too. Uh, when when the, the tail stalls on a on a T tail Cherokee or um, or tomahawk or something like that, uh, the nose wheel might get pranked too. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's some pitching down there, but yeah. uh, uh, some of the experimentals with. Uh, uh, a tubular front gear strut and a castering nose wheel uh, have not won raves for the durability of yeah. the nose gear. Yeah. Uh, Piper, by and large, the Cherokee line holds up pretty well. Uh, An oleo but, strut is still the best thing since premarital sex for a nose gear. <laughs> right, and then there's the uh, then there's the uh, beach musketeer. Yeah. which uh, had a, a, a funny tendency to want to pitch down at a certain point. And a yeah. big uh, magnesium casting on the front nose gear. Well, it was actually the same casting was on all three wheels. Well, the but early uh, The early casting was not very durable uh, to abuse of the nose gear. Yeah. 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 The early had, Cardinals had, a, had an issue. Uh, they lost pitch control authority. Exactly, yeah. That's another one. A lot, and and that's um, they all should have been modded by now with with slotted uh, leading uh, leading edges on the stabilator. But now, uh, and I I was well, always led to believe that one of the things that made um, the one fifty one fifty two line of Cessnas to be good training aircraft was that the nose wheel was pretty durable. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah. Um, although it's absolutely true, although it is also true <laughs> that most of the 150s and 150—I won't say most—a lot of the 150s and 152s that I've flown that were also trainers had a real susceptibility to nose wheel shimmy. That I understood was because they got beat up so bad. Um, that yeah, might be they, one. They, they might be one reason, but shimmy—you know—just needs someone to know the shimmy damper a little bit better and set up the system, set up the. Uh, um, the yeah. strut and the the mounts and everything else correctly, and it should be fine. There's something other. There's something else askew uh, uh, in those airplanes. Uh, they don't normally shimmy like that. Well, uh, okay. I mean, maybe they weren't set up right. The ones, you know, when I was at uh, West Valley Flying Club out in California learning to fly, um, a lot of the 152s, 150, 152s in their fleet had this problem. And you know, you just knew how to deal with it. I mean, if you, if the nose wheel shimmied, it was it was almost always because you had too much weight on the nose wheel, and you just kind of pull back on the yoke, and, and it would right. usually damp it out um, or or cause it to stop. I don't know if it, exactly why, but uh, well, and there's a lot of things contribute to shimmy. Uh, underinflated tire will sure. very often shimmy more uh, out of balance. And it always amazes me how casual a lot of aircraft owners are to the question of balancing tires and wheels uh, and not rebalancing tires and wheels when they do something that would be considered a major replacement, like a new inner tube. Uh-huh. Because an inner tube can have different balance characteristics and the one that they took out. Right. But they think if they put the tire back together at the same point, the wheel and the tire assembly back at the same point, you know, even going so far as to put marks on the tire, but then do it with a new tube and you can have a tire that's uh, a wheel assembly that's not as well balanced as it ought to be. Uh-huh. So... Um, so does this, the fact that this nose wheel, um, I mean, so, so I guess the consensus here is that they, there was a little bit of abuse of the airplane involved here. But nevertheless, you got to expect that training airplane are going to be abused a little bit. Does this suggest that the Remos maybe needs to be beefed up a little bit if it's going to be used as a training aircraft? It wouldn't hurt. Uh, wouldn't well, hurt 
Look, um, looking at the video about three times, I'm not sure that. Uh, well, you'd have to do a hell of a job of redesigning the nose gear to get it to put up with that on a yeah. consistent basis. Yeah, but, I think they just OD'd this one. Yeah, I think that's exactly what. What I mean, it flown correctly. You know, the Remos is. Well, let me rephrase this. Um, landed at a slower airspeed. <laughs> the Remos handle is fine on the runway. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and and the guy that was flying it went to great lengths to talk about the stall speed of the airplane and the position of the uh, airspeed needle when he was touching down. And, and I kept reading this and rewatching the video, going, "Dude, you're flying too fracking fast." Yeah. Yeah. He he was quite concerned. I you know well I, I don't want to judge his motives too much because quite fr- I, I actually happen to know that he's a listener so uh um but uh well it's 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 very it's very uh generous of him to say you know this is all my fault my flight instructor couldn't have done anything to correct me i think it's a good learning learning moment for the flight instructor too yeah yeah it's i like, mean i got i gotta keep my arms unfolded right yeah well i you know I, I mean i don't know what was going on exactly it seems like maybe they were all a little distracted or something i don't know but uh i, I yeah all when everything is said and done this is not like a huge deal all right this is a training accident a little bit more serious than average but a training accident and uh, and training's been known to produce accidents it, was, uh, it wasn't it wasn't that serious i mean no, no, there was no. really no no in no um strong chance for injury in that. No, that's um, true. When those wheel fails, the airplane slides to a stop, you get out and say, hey, did we just live through that? What, yeah. What's specifically noteworthy about this is video. it was captured on video. Video, exactly right. Yeah. Um, that, that's the only, only noteworthy thing. And, um, you know, stuff happens. Um, just land a little bit slower next time. Well, we could be saying the same thing about Jack Roush and the Premier One crunch up at Oshkosh a few weeks ago. Uh, so you uh, say a little bit faster then. Right. There, there was so much uh, video, uh, predominantly still photography, uh, from so many different photographers, so many different positions on the runway, so many different angles, uh, that that one's going to keep debate going, I would bet, well beyond... The issuance of a probable cause finding let's, by the NTSB. Let's back up a second. What's in? What's open for debate? Well, uh, you and I are in the same camp on this, okay. but yeah, has the video- know, there, There's no debate in my mind about what happened here. Yeah, me yeah. either. Yeah, the uh, the NTSB, uh, pr- whatever they call it, preliminary, I guess, um, makes reference to a video. Has that video been published yet? Has anybody? Have you guys seen it? I haven't seen any video. This one's not been released yet. And that's uh, that. That can be an issue when you deal with safety investigators, and you hand over without a copy, uh, film or video yep. footage. That's right. You know, I mean, it happened to a boss of mine years ago and me when we photographed uh, uh, the crash of a De Havilland Buffalo at Farnborough, and the very nice folks at the uh, uh, British. Uh, version of the NTSB uh, requested in very concrete terms uh, uh, to examine our, our film. Uh, and then they returned it to us. Uh, it was a, almost two months between when we surrendered the film and when we got it back, which kind of put a dent in its use potential uh, in the short term. But we did get it back. Right. But that was back in the day when you were shooting on film and there was really only one negative. These days, it's easy to give them a copy and not give them the original. Well, it is easy to give them a, a copy and not give them original. They're going to want the original. Uh, well, And you can keep the copy, but that all presumes that you've got time and, and foresight to make a copy. Well, I mean... I mean, unless they hand over the camera, then you're definitely going to give them a copy because you're going to upload it to your laptop and then you're going to shoot them uh, the file. Um, or you hand them over the, you, you know, the uh, secure digital card. Yeah. Why would I do well, that? I get yeah, why, that back why, and they why, say, why, sure, why, we'll get you a copy of it. Why would I give a secure digital card to the NTSB? 
when 10 minutes later you could give them the file. Or you could give them the card after uploading it to your... Uh, it's you, you, you're preaching to the choir, guys, but yeah. we're talking about the difference between knowledgeable professionals or knowledgeable amateurs and an amateur caught up in the adrenaline of the moment. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I guess. Okay. okay. Anyways, so... Uh, so the Remos, 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 and the well, uh, exposure. Exposure makes a huge difference in how much something gets talked about. I mean, there's well, just exactly no way right. around it. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, how right. else do you explain Cam Kardashian? <laughs> famous for being famous. I don't get the reference, but okay. I, yeah, I. I, well, I don't know I, who she is or what she does, but I, I know that she's I, I notorious. See, I see her picture and headlines about her in the checkout line at the grocery store, and that's about the extent. <laughs> very day in an argument with her sister and i have no idea who her sister is either yeah well there you go. <laughs> all right listeners please fill us, in, fill us in on the forums and let us know what the heck it is we're talking about because <laughs> we should be yeah. uh, so, as long as it doesn't mean watching uh you know uh america's next weirdo Students, pay attention, students. Good morning, I'm your substitute teacher, Mr. Bletch, and these are my rules. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast, students, that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. Now, students, this is very important. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Bueller. 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 There's Dave Higdon behind a camera lens. Jack Hodgson behind a mic. And Jeb Burnside, well, he's just behind. It's uncontrolled airspace. So, Jeb, uh, do you wish that you had flown a Piper Cub across America when you were a teenager? That would have been a very cool thing to do. Oh, the, the, man, yeah. Yeah, the, the trick is I just never thought about it in those terms. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, and and you know, the, the, the famous I, one. Um, I was well, happy to walk away from my next landing, you know. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> the, the famous and he has not changed in that regard. Yeah. Absolutely not. The famous, um, um, perhaps legendary example of this was when uh, Rinker Buck and his brother, whose name I'm, I apologize, I've, I've forgotten right now. Um, Rinker Buck's brother. Yeah. Uh, flew. And, and in fact, it was brother the brother. Buck. It was the brother who was the licensed pilot. Rinker was, in fact, not a pilot at this point because he was below the age. Um, but the two of them flew a Piper Cub that they had, according to the story, they had personally restored. Um, and they flew it all the way across the country from basically the uh, East Coast, the uh, Atlantic to the Pacific. And, uh, and then Rinker, years later, wrote the story um, in the book Flight of Passage, which is a terrific book. Um, it is a terrific book. And now we're, uh, and, and I think there's a couple of these going on right now, but the one that I'm looking at is from a story in the Baltimore Sun um, about a, a 17-year-old by the name of Nate Foster, who is, uh, is uh going to attempt this. Let's see now. Nate, Fo This is from a story dated uh, August 21, a few days ago. Nate Foster, uh, uh, oh, they're being, oh, the writer's being a little artistic here. Nate Foster stares across the Westminster airfield, a yellow pencil tucked behind his ear. Okay, enough dun, of this. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I know. Um, he just got his pilot's license on Thursday, and he's planning to uh, fly uh, an airplane, I believe a Cub, um, Foster 17 says he was inspired by reading the book Flight of Passage. In that memoir, Rinker Buck describes how he and his brother, both teenagers, this guy doesn't name the brother either, <laughs> <laughs> both teenagers uh, refurbished a Piper Cub and flew it from New Jersey to California in the summer of 1966. Um, so uh, very cool. I, you know, um, I'll have to check and see if he's done this yet or departed. I, I hadn't heard anything. Yeah. Um, let's see now. Uh, apparently, he was planning to leave within days of the 21st. So, yeah, he could be on his way now. And uh, I suppose we could Google his name and figure out what's going on here. But, uh, you know, it's very cool. I, you know, I, I, I think... I think most every pilot has at one point, you know, whether you're still a teenager or whether you're in middle age, has harbored the fantasy of doing some romantic long-distance right. flight. Right. Um, oh, dude, you just hit on one of the beauties 
of being a, being a pilot. Yeah. You never run out of those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, seriously, you, you can have a whole lifetime, a whole series of, you know, now that I've done that, what I'd really like to do next is. Yeah. Mine was, um, uh, there was a period where I, mine was to d- fly around the U.S., and, and overfly the four points, the westernmost point of the U.S., the northernmost point of the U.S., the eastern and the southernmost points of the U.S. in a great big uh, roundabout route. Um, and uh, well, Jack, I don't know if you're aware of this, yeah. but, but hey, you'll remember this. Back, it was a couple, three years ago now when Gulfstream, uh, used, maybe longer than that actually, um, Used the uh, the flight aware like system. Mm-hmm. They, they they flew a flight plan, and it spelled out G five. Oh yeah, on, okay. On the yep. continental U.S. Okay, um, stuff like that is is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yep. that that was mine. What was yours? Did you have a a, a romantic big cross country flight in your head ever? I, I'd like to cross the Atlantic. Yeah, All right, I, yeah I'd like to cross the Atlantic. Jeb, you want to, really across the Atlantic? Yeah. How how would you go? Uh, the, the the traditional northern route over. Uh... I'd go the northern route. It'd be I think the longest leg is like six hundred miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something like that. So yeah, the it, uh, it, what was it? Those uh, were they Remos guys or sport cruiser guys that did the southern route and came from from Africa across to South America to. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, those the uh, the Swedish pilots in the. Uh, oh, they were uh, CTs. CTs, C- yeah, CTs. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, that and and Jeb, uh, any particular type of aircraft? I mean, do you want like a big twin, or do you want? Uh, oh, a, a piston single. I'll take my airplane. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say you want to do it. You want to do it in Debbie. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. you wouldn't need to add tanks. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Need, all the only thing I need to do is uh, get a uh, life raft. I'll yeah. be good to go. Yeah. Well, you need to get in, one in, of them. In a, in an immersion suit. That's what but, I'm saying. Uh, you need one of them yeah. big orange, you know, kind of like. Equipment. Uh, but other than that, yeah. yeah. Um, the airplane well, got and, the left. And Debbie's, Debbie's already tanked for it. Yeah. She, she's got the left. She doesn't it. need anything special. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. David, what was yours? Well, there, there's a couple. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get to do the North Atlantic route in an airplane that had to make stops like Jim's talking about and over and back years ago, and that whetted my appetite for that. But one that Annie yeah, and I have talked about engines, repeatedly. How many engines? Well, we, we did have four. We yeah. did have four. Uh, oh, but we four? stopped in all of us. We stopped in all the same places. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> you know, I'm serious. We stopped in all the same places, uh, partly because we could get in and out of 1,500 feet. But uh, uh, the one that Annie and I have talked about most, and we've flown to the Cayman Islands, and we've flown to Cancun, uh, the long way around to Cancun in Mexico, uh, got to cover a lot of the Bay of Campeche and the Gulf of Mexico on that trip. But flying the perimeter of South America, uh, down the west coast, around Tierra del Fuego, back up the east coast, and then back to the United States by hopping back through uh, uh, the Caribbean and southern Florida. That's kind of high on our list, and we have an idea about the airplane and what it would take. Mm-hmm. And all we need is the winning lottery ticket, and <laughs> it won't matter how I take the time off. That's right. Yeah, That's well, you need to get EAA to pay for the flight, and he'll write a story about it, right? That's right. And then there's one behind that, too. What's that? And that's to fly up to Alaska, yeah. uh-huh. and then from Alaska to Russia, Ooh. Yeah. and then turn around and come home. Yeah, okay. Well, you, yeah, you can see Russia, though, from Alaska, so. <laughs> well, I understand, and if I can get an invitation to the right ex-governor's house, I'll be able to see Russia from her place and do my flight planning from there. I think, For, yes. Former half-term ex-governor. Yeah, okay, let's not go there. Um <laughs> So uh, we wish the best of luck to uh, Nate Foster uh, in his uh, attempt. Absolutely, to, uh, dude. That's uh, very yeah. cool. We're, yeah, very, we're very jealous. Yeah. yeah, we're very jealous. That's pretty cool. Well, and, and when Annie, when Annie and I were, we, we both worked started out working on our private pilot's licenses together, and I finished mine on a deadline. And the reason there was a deadline was because we had this trip already planned in our head, and that was to go all the way to the East Coast and then down to Kitty Hawk, and then back to Wichita in the first 10 days that I had a private pilot's license. Uh, we pulled it off. 
we had a great time. Yeah. And, and, and everybody else was far more nervous about the idea of us putting in a 2,500 mile round trip than we were. Yeah. Yeah. And he kept telling family and friends, well, it's just like one short cross country after another, after another, after another, and you're going in the same direction. The, the big thing for me after I bought my airplane in the first year of ownership, I had it over both the Atlantic and the Pacific, and that was kind of the, that was the kind of goal I set for myself, and I made that one. Cool, very cool. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah, yeah. Isn't really that is. cool? Just because you can. Yeah. Just because you can. Jeb, did you fly any particular route over the Rockies, or were you able to go high enough that it didn't matter, or what did you do? Um, the route I prefer is the same route that um, Dave and I used several years ago to go to Vegas from uh, yeah. Wichita, which uh-huh. takes you Albuquerque, Winslow, uh, and in uh, south of Edwards Air Force Base over in, in the Joshua Valley. Right. And uh, from there, you can hit L.A., you can hit uh, Central Coast, or you can go up uh, the San Fernando and go into uh, San Francisco. Right, yeah. And I've done it twice, not not as pilot in command, but uh, I've done it twice uh, going to, uh, to and from Oshkosh. And we basically followed Interstate 80. You, you basically go from San Francisco yeah. up to Lake Tahoe, out to Reno, out to Salt Lake City. Yeah, if you're flying that far north, that's a great way to do it. Yeah, it was very yeah. painless. Um, we, we did, you know, we got high enough to want to use oxygen, um, but it really wasn't all that high. Um, we did get beat up a little bit um, turbulence-wise uh, over, I guess it was Wyoming, um, but uh, but it was pretty uneventful. Um, we did we did have to do the heart the hurricane the thunderstorm thing um, on the way home, um, but uh, you know you just do what you have to do and uh, it was sure. fine. It was a good adventure. Yeah. Well, uh, Jeb knows my buddy Kenny yeah. and his airplane partner Jim, uh, and years ago they. Uh, they took uh, uh, another friend, a third friend of mine, they took his uh, V-tailed Bonanza uh, up to Alaska. And uh, coming out of the northwest United States, uh, they followed the Alcan Highway into Alaska uh, because that was the route that gave them the lowest clearance altitudes and the maximum exposure to alternate landing areas. Right. The alternate landing areas being the Alcan Highway. Right. Yeah, I spent some time planning, at least as a fantasy flight, I, uh, planning that flight when I was living out in California. That was another fantasy flight, was to fly up to Alaska. And, uh, um, I, so I, what is your fantasy flight, listeners? Yeah, really. I'd love to hear some of these stories. Yeah. Unless you're champ guy, in which case, you know, it's an actual flight, but that's uh, another story. We should. Well, or what's your fantasy flight fulfilled? Which ones have you done? Yeah, exactly. That would be because, great to hear that. You know, we've already, done, we've already done some of ours and we hope to do more. Yeah. Um, speaking of hearing from listeners here, uh, we got an email from. So there's a couple of stories we talked about in the recent past. Um, one of which was uh, we talked about a company called Sonex that was doing research on using diesel fuel uh, in airplane engines. And, uh, and I don't know whether we said outright or alluded or joked about the possibility that this was the same Sonex that was a um, designer and maker of kit-built airplanes and that had been experimenting with uh, a, small, a small jet engine on their airplane. Um, but a couple of listeners have sent us uh, information that, in fact, it's not the same company, um, that the Sonex, uh, Sonex Research that is the company that's doing the diesel fuel research and that uh, is not to be confused with the very excellent kit um, company, Sonex, whatever. And they're totally unrelated? Uh, that's what I've been told by a couple of different people. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So uh, just to clarify that, um, both very, very interesting uh, uh, you know, projects um, and companies, but two different companies apparently. The well, other, glad to have that explained. Yeah. The other is uh, we were talking, uh, sort of on the same conversation, we were talking about the difference between diesel fuel and jet A fuel. And, uh, you know, as we are wont to do, um, we just kind of guessed that they were basically the same. Um, and a couple of listeners have uh, sent in information saying that um, this is from, uh, I'm reading from an email that came from a listener, Ron M. And, and Ron writes, um, uh, he says, I understand that one of the differences between diesel and Jet A is that diesel contains lubricants for the engine. Um, and uh, at least that's 
one of the concerns expressed in using Jet A in the diamond diesels, he writes. Does this make sense to you? Is this, this these sorts of additives in one or the other of these two fuels? He says there's lubricants in diesel. In diesel. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, there could be, you know, magical mystery oil in, uh, in uh, mm -hmm. uh, diesel fuel. I don't know. Um, okay. I, I th you know, so, some, some aircraft engines will run on diesel fuel. Some of them won't. They'll run on jet A only. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, anyways, thanks to the listeners, uh, and in particular, thanks to uh, listener Ron M. for uh, for updating us on this. And uh, you know, we obviously are not all that concerned about getting it right the first time around, but we try to get it right the second time around. And uh, so there we go. Um, let's see now, David. I know you don't have the benefit of the list in front of you here, but what you wrote was, and now for something completely different. And the story that you're referring to, is, does this ring a bell, David? Here, let's see here. This is from a story from um, AvWeb. Uh, from AvWeb. Uh, it's, uh, oh, this is the guy, they're going to recreate the uh, highest parachute jump. Oh, yeah, thing. yeah. Uh, so, uh, it, it's actually run in a number of places. AvWeb was just the most convenient one for uh, giving you uh, some text to link to. But yeah. Reading uh, from our, old, our old buddy who used to fly the... Uh, New American Standard Tour at Sun and Fun. Uh, I rode along with him a number of times before connecting the name Joe Kittinger with Colonel Joe Kittinger, who set a world record for skydiving from the edge of space back during the high and, and heady days of the early 60s in aviation research. And he's been consulting on this new effort to go even higher and what stuck out about me is uh, about this was that Colonel Kittinger's jump all those years ago from above 100,000 feet went up in a helium balloon and set a record for being the fastest human because he was free-falling at over 600 miles an hour at one point. Uh, was all the cameras and video and yeah. all the extra effort it took to protect this gear so that they can go even higher yeah, and then document the whole thing. And, of course, it's another Red Bull effort, which means folks don't stop buying Red Bull or we're going to run out of funny aviation shit. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, this is my impression of the whole thing. It's not so much of a – this is not so much a guy jumping uh, from very high up. This is their, They're going to drop a fully equipped high-definition television studio with a guy attached to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, I want to see the – Who, see who the knew you had to go through so much work just to let gravity – cause you to set a record yeah reading i, I want to see the raw video all the way down i know really i'm reading from the AvWeb story here it says the red bull stratos capsule will be equipped with nine high definition cameras three 4k digital cinematography cameras and three high resolution digital still cameras the outside cameras are in pressurized it goes on to talk a little bit more but uh yeah. um the, the 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 human being uh in question here is a guy by the name of felix baumgartner um, who, uh, again, from the story, is working to break the long-standing long freefall record by jumping from a balloon gondola at the edge of space later this year, um, and all sponsored by Red Bull, as Dave said. So, uh, and, and how high is he planning to jump from? Well, I'm not seeing that in this story. 62 miles, I think, was the... Well, 62 no, that miles. was the fall. That was the next story, Dan. I'm sorry. I was yeah, no, that 62 miles is the edge of space. That's the whole X Prize thing, and... Uh, um, so, so Colonel Kittinger came out, I believe, at one hundred and five thousand. I think that's right. And, yeah, uh, and, it says one hundred two eight. Considerably higher than that. Yeah. It says here one hundred and two eight. So I mean, that's one hundred two eight. Okay. Yeah. So, anyways, it's. Uh, I mean, just suffice to say that that this was not one of my fantasies about aviation. All right. And, <laughs> I, I've never fantasized about jumping out of an airplane. Of any sort, exactly of right. Any sort. Well, a perfectly good airplane. A perfect, yeah. It I can mean, be really fun. Yeah, right. Uh, and how, when's the last time you did it, David? 
the last time I did it was uh, 1976. I know, I know. Yeah. You've, you've told us that story before. <laughs> very, a very sobering story that we won't go into today. But, uh, yeah, no, I've said before, and I'll say again, that uh, I, I would have a hard time jumping out of an airplane if it was spiraling on fire towards the ground. Um, <laughs> oh, in it, I, I can do it in a split second, baby. Yeah, okay. I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying. Well, that's that's one of the things that skydiving and and uh, and a few years later, uh, a, a hang gliding simulator that Dan Johnson helped develop at his hang gliding school outside Chattanooga, where we flew uh, once a year to deploy our hand deployed emergency parachutes out of our harness because they were supposed to be repacked every year. So we would go over and we'd have a an all-day event flying Dan's uh, hang gliding simulator so we could practice deploying our parachute. Because if we were lucky, that practice was the only time we'd ever actually see the canopy out. Uh-huh, yeah. And then the master rigger would inspect it and, and you know, sprinkle it with holy parachute water and and then oversee the repacking and put it back and give us a little ticket so that it was good until next year. But the big thing was the confidence building uh, that doing that exercise provided. And when you get used to the idea that that parachute will bloody well work, and it becomes much easier to conceive of, you know, pulling the handle, much easier. Yeah, so, well, interesting stuff, and, uh, you know, We'll see how it goes, but uh, like like Jeb said, I want to see the video. I want to see the video. <laughs> hey, shout-outs. We've reached yeah. the end of our allotted time here, and uh, um, David, you're no longer at a disadvantage because there are no shout-outs on our list here. You got any off the top of your head? Well, I, I, I want to shout-out to HAPS Aerial Services and Aviation Specialist out at Clark County Airport, Juliet Victor Yankee. Uh it was not the airport in my hometown when I was growing up. It's the replacement for it. Uh, but I've been out there a couple of times in the last couple of days. And uh, there are several hundred GA aircraft based there, uh, some gorgeous warbirds based there. Uh, Papa John Pizza's founder, John Schnatter, went to high school with my baby brother. Uh, he keeps his business jet there. Uh, and it was kind of nice to see that, Pretty much as much activity as I was seeing two years and three and four years ago continues to go on at that airport, yeah. uh, which kind of makes me optimistic for the future. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Jeb, you got anything? Yeah. Tracy Potter. <clears throat> he is president of Hagerstown Aircraft Services in uh, Hagerstown, Maryland. Um, they are having the, uh, Tracy's, uh, uh, I consider him a friend. Uh, he shot painted my airplane back in the day. Uh, easy to work with, uh, knows airplanes in and out, great shop if, if you're in the area. Punchline is they're having on September 25 and 26, not August 25 and 26, but September 25 and 26, okay. um, their, their 12th annual aircraft, uh, Hagerstown Aircraft Services fly in an open house, uh, 8, PM, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day, um, tell the tower you're going taxi to hangar, uh, to taxiway P. Taxiway Papa, Sounds and it uh, should be a good time. It's a, um, I, I've not been to one, but knowing Tracy and his crew, uh, it'll it'll be fun. Yeah, say again. And what airport we're talking about here? Hag- Hagerstown, Maryland. Okay. Be careful. Uh, check the charts. Be careful. P forty. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, it sounds like great fun. Yeah. yeah. Sounds yeah. good. Sounds good. Well, that's it. Time to stick a fork in this one, David. How's the cell phone battery doing? Oh, I'm in great shape. Okay. Uh, Dave Higdon uh, is, uh, is, as everyone knows. This is not the droid you're looking for. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Dave is an aviation... I keep telling you, man, that's the ad they're missing out on. <laughs> Dave is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, you don't have your computer in front of you. Can you tell us where people can find you on the Internet from your head? Well, let me think here. Uh, avbuyer.com, uh, aviation safety, what is that? Aviation safety something or other.com, uh, aea.net, uh, davehigdon.biz, or uncontrolledairspace.com. There you go. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation journalist currently serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Where can people find you on the internet, Jeb? 
AviationSafetyMagazine.com is a good place to start. Uh, that's kind of the day job. Uh, JEBurnside.com is my woefully um, not recently uh, updated website, personal website. And um, occasionally I pop up on AvWeb and uh, AEA.net. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. As always, big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to uh, Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the uncontrolled uncontrolled airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled tip jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. Now, don't let me f- interrupt you, Jack. Yep. Um, earlier on, we were talking about anniversaries. Yeah. Okay. And we didn't know what the, the appropriate gift was for the fourth anniversary. Yes, please. What is it? Uh, the traditional gift is fruit or flowers. Flowers would probably be more appropriate. Okay, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. So the modern the modern gift is appliances. Appliances. Oh, so appliance. So this is, yeah, this they, is according to this list I googled. So there you go. So if they want to gift us with a Loran, we'll we'll take. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jack, we'll, we'll let you hold that one. Okay. Yeah, okay. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, there we go. And appliances. Maybe that's, I thought I had the title of this one, but I think maybe I just got changed. Um, hey, and don't, don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog. You can view the forums. Check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, web page of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were who you going to say? Who wrote what? that stuff, man? <laughs> David, what were you going to say? Easy for you to say. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to say was, in quick order... Thanks, all you listeners, for making it four fun years. Uh, Let's hope that year five is as much fun. And to make sure you live through it, go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFN. AMFFN.